As medical trainees, we can sometimes exist in a bubble. Political debates will be raging about our very field, healthcare, and we'll struggle to keep tabs on what's happening because we're in the hospital or studying, sometimes 80 hours a week. But in our bubble, we notice things. We notice the way patients are treated or not treated. We notice patterns. And so if we choose to speak about it, to spend the extra time learning more, we can shed light on important issues and actually contribute to the debate happening outside our bubble. So what does it take to change the system we work in? I'm interested in understanding how physicians innovate within the walls of the hospital and their academic institutions. How do they change the practice of medicine even as they are steeped in it? One possible approach is to have a second professional identity and discipline that gives you a different perspective and community with which to build your career. For example, Dr. Helena Hansen, who I sat down with today, is both a psychiatrist and an anthropologist. She holds a BA from Harvard College and MD and PhD degrees from Yale. She did her PhD in anthropology. She's now an associate professor in the Department of Psychiatry at New York University, and she studies racial bias in addiction treatment, a project that she actually started as a resident at Bellevue Hospital. She is a recipient of the Robert Wood Johnson Investigator Award in Health Policy Research and is currently working on a film called Managing the Fix, a documentary on race, class, and addiction pharmaceuticals. So, how did Dr. Hansen do her research on the system while in the system? Let's find out. Dr. Hansen, welcome to the show. I'm really excited to get to interview you today about your career and your research interests. Uh, I'd like to start first by just asking you to introduce yourself. Uh, tell us who you are and what you do. My name is Helena Hansen, and I'm an, a, I'm an associate professor of anthropology and psychiatry at NYU. Mm-hmm. And what are your research interests currently? Ah, well, right now I'm finishing a project on opioids and race, Uh which I started completely by accident well over a decade ago um, while I was still in training. So um, this is a project that that grew organically out of my curiosity about buprenorphine, otherwise Mm -hmm. known as Suboxone. Mm -hmm. I saw it being introduced in clinics at Bellevue, and I had actually been, as a medical student, working under an attending who's running early clinical trials of buprenorphine for opioid dependence. And when I reached Bellevue for my residency in psychiatry, I noticed that there was a very strong demographic pattern to who was getting buprenorphine for opioid dependence versus who was getting methadone. Mm-hmm. So um, within Bellevue Hospital, which is New York City's largest hospital, you know, serves patients, they claim of, from over 180 language groups in any given day, very few middle-class white patients. Mm-hmm. Um, but the buprenorphine clinic, which was located in primary care, because the whole innovation with buprenorphine was that you could treat opioid-dependent people in primary care offices with regular prescriptions, just like any other medication, 
um, using an opioid, buprenorphine, mm-hmm. which was a big legal breakthrough, something I'm going to be talking about later today here yeah. even. Um, it, so it turns out that the primary care clinic had a buprenorphine service that was primarily educated white people, um, some of whom qualified for Medicaid simply because they lost their jobs due to their addiction and qualified that way, but it was a very unusual demographic. Mm -hmm. So I got curious about that, and I started tracking the story. Mm -hmm. Um, And all of my research habits as an anthropologist came in handy, and I actually was able to take advantage of my position as a psychiatry resident and later as as an addiction psychiatry fellow Mm -hmm. As a participant observation opportunity, actually. I, mm-hmm. I, I actually I think that the fact that I was a buprenorphine prescriber and a physician gave me access to um, addiction scientists and pharmaceutical executives and a whole host of people that otherwise might have been a little harder to access for uh, interviews yeah. and for background information. So I began to kind of track a story of ethnic marketing of opioids, so to speak, and the story of how the opioid crisis became, quote-unquote, white. Yeah. So that's my, my the current project that I'm finishing, and mm-hmm. I'm launching a new project on ethnic marketing of psychotropic medications more broadly because, mm-hmm. I, again, in my role as a psychiatry resident, I noticed these interesting patterns of low-income low black and brown people getting certain kinds of antipsychotics that typically had much stronger sedative sedative effects for a Mm -hmm. wide range of diagnoses. And then in the uh, private NYU hospital that we also trained in, the more affluent white patients getting um, a different set of antipsychotics. They tended to get bipolar diagnosis, not schizophrenia, which was Mm -hmm. the more common diagnosis at Bellevue Hospital Mm -hmm. among the Medicaid-insured population. So I started to get curious about how this worked in other areas with other classes of medications. Um, But I did, for my dissertation, I did more traditional research. Uh Uh, And my book, based on my dissertation, recently came out because it took me over a decade to actually get it published. Wow, that's amazing. What what is the book on? So the book is called Addicted to Christ, Remaking Men and Pentecostal, Puerto Rican Pentecostal Drug Ministries. Uh And it's about faith healing of addiction in um, ministries in Puerto Rico that are founded and run by self-identified formerly addicted people. Oh, wow. And it's a phenomenon that I learned about here in the Northeast when I, before I went to medical school and grad school, actually, I was working for the National AIDS Fund, uh-huh. and I was um, in charge of giving mini grants to community organizers around HIV in low-income inner-city areas of New Jersey. Mm-hmm. And I kept running across these ministries that actually were doing a lot of the work of addiction treatment in neighborhoods that had long been abandoned by public health officials and clinics. Mm-hmm. And so I got very curious about these homegrown detox centers that were cropping up in little storefront areas that that these ministries were squatting, essentially. And I traced the phenomenon back to Puerto Rico, where it's really predominant. There's a different idea of separation of church and state in Puerto Rico. So actually three-fourths of the state-licensed addiction treatment programs in Puerto Rico are faith-based, and um, the majority of them are this Pentecostal faith healing model. Mm -hmm. So it was a really interesting place to do that work and to start to make some links between a whole cohort of displaced working class men in Puerto Rico, whose, on the one hand, apparently only economic option is to work in the drug trade Mm -hmm. and the ways that these ministries provided 
another, an alternative ladder, an alternative mm-hmm. source of identity. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was my dissertation work, and yeah. um, it took me so long to write the book that I ended up folding in a lot of my um, development and my thinking about addiction uh-huh. in the course of my training after doing my field work. So yeah. the last chapter of the book, and this is kind of on the topic of your your organization, which is fantastic, creativity uh-huh. and medicine, mm-hmm. what got me so interested in addiction psychiatry when I was a resident was that I happened to work in a clinic that was run by a psychiatrist who's also a visual artist and who did a lot of nice things in the clinic. She made art therapy a really prominent form of intervention there, Mm -hmm. and she did a lot of things to create community within the clinic. So there's a patient government, and um, patients, actually, they, they... co-lead or run a lot of the groups mm-hmm. and there are a lot of there are social events attached to it and for the many of the people come to the, for addiction treatment there are totally disconnected from their families mm-hmm. and they really they need a source of connection mm-hmm. for their recovery to be successful so uh, she also founded a sobriety garden so there is an opportunity for them to plant and harvest uh-huh. and it's a it's a big plot of land in the back of Bellevue Hospital in the middle of Manhattan that the hospital had deemed not usable even for a parking lot, and they turned it into a garden. And it's a really nice um, community center as well. But I saw in front of me creativity in medicine uh-huh. and something you mentioned to me earlier, passion yeah. for the work mm-hmm. unfolding there in the garden and in the clinic. And it's a place where I still volunteer twice a week because for me it's like church. It's like I get... I get rejuvenated by seeing what's possible. Going back to what you were saying about being in training, you notice these patterns in your patient interactions that you then realized you were in a position to research. And through research, show that this is happening in an academic sense that could perhaps reach more people or resonate with more people in the medical world. That, to me, takes a lot of courage to say, I see this race-based difference in treatment, and I'm going to research this to show that it's happening. And I'm curious whether you found at the time that it was difficult to speak up and say, I noticed this pattern. And how did you find the courage at the time as a trainee to speak up and to make this the topic of your research? Well, thank you for saying that. (laughs) I didn't think of it as courage, actually. (laughs) But um, I do remember that when I was in residency and in my fellowship, I I felt a little bit duplicitous because there were many people I was training under whose work in a sense I was critiquing Mm -hmm. in the sense that I ended up pointing out that even addiction science has a lot of racialized assumptions built into it Mm -hmm. and this idea of of addiction as this universal brain disease actually erases many of the social forces that I think are responsible for addiction so what I'm writing is actually somewhat critical of the framework that many of my mentors in my addiction psychiatry fellowship were working in. And at the, at the same time, I found other mentors who were incredibly sympathetic to this kind of critique and who supported it all the way. Mm-hmm. So I remember it was, it was complicated to navigate that, and there are many 
people that I trained under that I did not feel comfortable talking to directly about my findings until much later. Mm-hmm. And I'm just beginning to do that now. I've been surprised at how receptive some of them are. Um, not all of them are. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, I, I don't want to paint an overly rosy picture. Mm-hmm. For Well, for instance, um, it's been difficult to get NIH funding for this particular thread. I actually did get a, a large NIH grant that supported me in bringing this from kind of an idea to an actual set of findings. Uh-huh. But the way I wrote the proposal was very indirect about the racial inequalities and mm-hmm. things like that. Um, and since I finished that grant and have written others, I've noticed that um, it, it is very hard to be explicit and get funding with um, review committees that are really invested in this universal brain disease model that doesn't account for all of the social patternings of addiction. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that's probably that's the primary place where I notice some resistance. And I, and I have to say, when you say bravery, for me it's not bravery because I had the security of this other identity as an anthropologist. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm kind of thinking out loud that people who follow your site mm-hmm. may not necessarily have a degree in the arts or a degree in the social sciences. So it's, yeah. it's trickier to navigate that. Let's say you're an academic physician and you rely on NIH funding mm-hmm. for your research career. How do you take it in a direction that might be kind of critical of the, yeah. sci- the clinical science establishment? Yeah. Um, for me, I was able to lean on anthropology mm-hmm. in many ways because when I, I didn't get NIH funding for the follow-up studies, yeah. my anthropology colleagues said, no problem, you know, and they helped me find foundation funding. Um, but there, I'm, I'm sure there are creative ways to manage this. Yeah. I do have colleagues that are fully in medical schools mm-hmm. who have figured out how to navigate this field. Uh, they're very careful about who they align themselves with in the NIH. You know, mm-hmm. the NIH holds a lot of power when it comes to academic, academic medicine. So whatever they deem the priority and the, the right approach is going to be what's funded. And this kind of speaks to your topic of creativity in medicine because that does put some limits on what kinds of research can take place in academic medical settings. And what I've discovered as a faculty member now is that there's a whole political economy behind that where NIH funding brings in a lot of overhead to medical schools. Medical schools Mm -hmm. are ranked based on the amount of NIH funding they get. So there's a lot of pressure on... Uh, faculty at medical schools to bring in NIH funding as opposed to private foundation funding like Robert Wood Johnson, which is much more progressive, which is prioritizing social determinants of health. And you received funding from Robert Wood Johnson as well. That is great that they supported your work. I saw that you're making a film called Managing the Fix on the subject of race and the opioid epidemic, and I was curious how that project came about and what is it like working on it and when can we expect to be able to watch it? Thank you for that question. (laughs) So it turns out the same clinic I just described that has Mm -hmm. all this creative arts therapy in a garden has a filmmaking group. And I had no background in film, but I was just so curious and intrigued that I joined the group and I've been with them since I was a resident. And they inspired me to try to put into film some of the story about race and opioids. And I, I got three uh, patients in the clinic 
um, who agreed to let me follow them with a camera. And when I say me, it was actually a team of us um, who were in this group. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of a group project. And I learned a lot along the way. And because it was such a steep learning curve, it's taken me years and years to finish it. But we finally, we have a final cut now. And so it should be... Um, it should be available very soon. Oh, I that's great. I don't have a distribution plan yet, so I can't tell you, oh, go to this website or go to this company and you yeah. can get it. But I'll get back to you with that shortly. So my final comment about that is just that it is such a pleasure to do participatory creative projects with mm-hmm. patients, mm-hmm. otherwise known as clients. So yeah. my, I, my art therapy colleagues don't even refer to them as patients because they feel that's too hierarchical. Yeah. But I highly recommend it. Thank you so much, Dr. Hansen, for joining us today and sharing some of your own experience. It was a pleasure to have you on the podcast. This is a Doctors Who Create podcast. Our podcast leads are Darlena Leo and Shiv Nadkarni. Today, we spoke with Dr. Helena Hansen from NYU. If you have any questions about Doctors Who Create, we really encourage you to reach out to us. You can tweet us at Doctors Create, or you can email me at Vidya, V-I-D-Y-A, at DoctorsWhoCreate.com. We'd love to hear your reactions to this episode or suggestions for future people we can talk to for our podcast. Music today was by Blue Dot Sessions with intro music by the band Night Float, formerly known as Tries Me Rescue. Thanks for listening.